chapter 6, if you have your Bible with you this evening, you say, well, what about uh, member appreciation? All right, I'll shave a few minutes off of that in appreciation for you. Uh, Exodus chapter 6, we're going to break this chapter up. Uh, we're going to cover the first 13 verses tonight. And the title, the, the summary that I've given to this text of Scripture is Getting the Right Perspective. Getting the Right Perspective. I love this study through the book of Exodus, especially in this early part, because really it is somewhat of a case study of the leader, Moses. And this guy goes through a lot of things. He has ups, he has downs, he has victories, he has defeats. And uh, we just get to see that laid bare in scripture and how he dealt with it and uh, we can learn some things from him about what to do and some things what not to do and so uh, we're going to learn from him tonight. Exodus 6 1 says then the Lord said unto Moses now shalt thou see what I will do to Pharaoh for with a strong hand shall he let them go and with a strong hand shall he drive them out of his land. And God spake unto Moses and said unto him, I am the Lord. And I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob by the name of God Almighty. But by my name Jehovah was I not known to them. And I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, wherein they were strangers." And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Wherefore, say unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will rid you out of their bondage, and I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments. And I will take you to me for a people, and I will be to you a God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, which bringeth you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you in unto the land, concerning the which I did swear to give it to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And I will give it you for an heritage. I am the Lord." And Moses spake so unto the children of Israel, but they hearkened not unto Moses for anguish of spirit and for cruel bondage. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Go in, speak unto Pharaoh, king of Egypt, that he let the children of Israel go out of his land. And Moses spake before the Lord, saying, Behold, the children of Israel have not hearkened unto me. How then shall Pharaoh hear me? who am of uncircumcised lips. And the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, and gave them a charge unto the children of Israel and unto Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you this evening with hungry hearts, desiring to be filled and to be fed with the nourishment of your word. Lord, we know that we are about to embark upon a week uh, that is going to be trying and demanding as the weeks before have been as we deal with this new way of life. Father, we know that as we get ever closer to this election, the politics and the political ads and the rhetoric will increase and berate us day after day. Lord, there will be new information that is disclosed by each side, and we will be trying to process all of these things. And 
Lord, I just sense that this time in our country and in our lives is a heavy time, especially for your people. And I pray and ask that you would use your word this evening, and especially this lesson from the life of Moses, to change our perspective and to help us to look through the right lens, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you recall from last week, Moses faced opposition from Pharaoh. He went in, told Pharaoh, God said, let my people go. And, and Pharaoh doesn't even give him the courtesy of saying no. He says, I, what God? I, I don't know this God. And so not only does he dismiss Moses' authority, but he doesn't even recognize God's authority. And because Moses had went in and petitioned this, Pharaoh, in retaliation, commanded that the straw that was being provided for the Hebrew slaves to make brick was to be taken away, and that those Hebrew workmen would have to go out and find their own straw and stubble and scrounge it up, but he was going to require the same production number of bricks. Well, when the Hebrews weren't able to produce it because they didn't have the straw, they were beaten and whipped by the taskmasters. And so when a delegation of them goes into Pharaoh and says, what are you doing? Why are you doing this to us? It's not our fault we can't make the bricks. Really, it's your fault. You're supposed to provide the straw. And Pharaoh said, look, if you have time to send Moses in here to ask for time off to go and make your sacrifices then you've got too much free time on your hands, and I thought that I would take care of that for you. Well, as the narrative unfolded, as those men, those leaders of the Israelites were leaving the court of Pharaoh with this news, they ran into Moses and Aaron, and they are mad at him. And instead of blaming Pharaoh for not recognizing what their God has commanded Moses to do, they blame Moses. And they're resentful to Moses, and they say, Moses, what are you doing? Why are you bringing this hardship upon us? And Moses, being, not being a megalomaniac, but being a conscientious leader, is broken. He's distraught by this. And as chapter 5 ended, Moses had went to God in petition and saying, God, what, what are you doing? Why, why are you doing this? Uh, Pharaoh's not budging one bit. In fact, I haven't made life better for these people that you've called me to liberate. I've actually made their bondage heavier. I, I've created the exact opposite of what you promised would happen. And chapter 6 is God's response to Moses. And the verses that we read, specifically those uh, first eight verses, it is God speaking back to Moses. He is answering Moses' prayer. And in true God-like fashion, God doesn't always simply respond to the question that is asked, but God answers a bigger question, and he gives instruction that is not just specific to Moses' situation, uh, but it is actually something that transcends Moses' time and situation and will apply to God's people throughout every age and generation so much so that even today, in 2020, in the United States of America, you and I can read these words that God spoke to Moses, and we can be helped by them. We can be instructed by them, and we can be encouraged by them. And what God does 
for Moses in chapter 6 is he helps Moses get the right perspective. Perspective is all about how you are viewing things, how you are looking at it, how you are seeing it. And Moses is looking through this lens and all he sees is this negative reaction of Pharaoh and he sees the resentment of the people of Israel because they are hurt. And he looks and he, he sees that and it burdens him down and that's all that he can see. And he's really, at this point, thinking about quitting, thinking about, well, I'm the person who's created the mess. Maybe if I leave this situation, it will get better and what God does for Moses is he says look Moses you're not in the wrong place at the right wrong time you just have the wrong view of things and you need to get your perspective right I love how uh, verse 1 begins the Lord said unto Moses now shalt thou see now shalt thou see what I will do to Pharaoh and we understand that God is just alerting Moses to the fact that there is an unfolding plan that is going to be laid out before his eyes, and we see it narrated in the following chapters. But I did think that it was interesting that God says to Moses, now you're going to see. I'm going to open your eyes to something. I'm going to give you a sight that you need to see. I'm going to change the direction of your view. And so I just want to share with you four, four principles from this passage tonight in getting your perspective right. Number one, look up. Look up. When God tells Moses, I'm going to show you, or I'm going to let you see what I'm going to do, before God ever answers Moses' address, before God gets into his trustworthiness and his track record, before God gets into the specifics of his promises that are coming, he declares who he is. Notice verse 2, And God spake unto Moses and said unto him, <clears throat> I am the Lord. Well, is this the first time Moses is meeting God or what? I mean, aren't they on a speaking terms already? Aren't they on a first name basis? Didn't God call Moses already at the burning bush and have that sacred encounter? Why does God feel the need at this stage in their relationship to say, Moses, I'm the Lord. That's because God wants Moses to change his perspective, and he's saying you're looking in the wrong place. The first thing you need to do is you need to look up. I am the Lord. He goes on and he says in verse 3, I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob by the name of God Almighty, but by my name Jehovah was I not known to them. You know, God, once again, is reintroducing himself to Moses. I am the Lord, Moses. Hey, Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew me as God Almighty, El Shaddai, the Almighty God. But I am making myself known unto you as Jehovah. You know, that verse has really... Uh, troubled some Bible teachers and scholars throughout the ages because it sounds as if this is the first time the term Jehovah is ever being used. But if you actually go back into Genesis, you'll find that God used that same name when he spoke to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is, in fact, the Hebrew 
that is translated into the English word Lord. So when you see, like in verse 2, I am the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, that is the translation of Jehovah. You will see it again in verse 6, wherefore say unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord, I am Jehovah. He says it again in verse 7, I am the Lord, I am Jehovah. He says it again in verse 8, I am the Lord, I am Jehovah. He says it again in verse 29, I am the Lord. And it is the same title that God used before. What is he saying here? He is saying to Moses that you're going to come to know me in a way, in a new way, in a personal way that others have not known me. We talked about this word Jehovah. It is a compound word made up of three Hebrew words. It is the perfect form of being. It is he that was, he that is, he that will be, uh, be being been, if you will. And God is talking about his eternality. God is talking about his sufficiency. God is talking about his sovereignty. I mean, all of that is encapsulated there. And I know that there's probably somebody in the crowd tonight that says, well, you say Jehovah, my grandma said Yeshua, and some people say Yehovah, and what it, listen, those are all translation issues, it's the same word. The issue is, is that they didn't put the vowels in there because it was a sacred name, and so we filled in our own vowel points, and so sometimes it's brought out Jehovah or Yeshua, uh, other forms of that way. But it is the same name. And God is reminding Moses, you're looking in the wrong place, pal. You're looking around. You're looking at Pharaoh. You're looking at the people. You're looking at the situation. And you need to be looking at me. You need to be looking at me. Look up. Look up. You know what the problem, one of the problems with our age is? It is called, we used to call it, I don't know if the kids call it this anymore, information overload. In fact, what used to be called information overload uh, has really risen to an entirely new level, whereas doctors are, some of them are diagnosing it as overstimulation because we have a constant stream of media coming at us through our phone, through our tablet, through our smartwatch, through our television set, whatever it may be. I mean, we always have this endless stream of information, and we weren't built to process that all the time. And one of the dangers of it for you and I as Christians is that we stop looking at the Lord, don't we? This is the classic pose of the 21st century, isn't it? As a matter of fact, I had a doctor tell me that they are concerned about the neck problems that they're going to be treating in the next 20 years with the generation that has been raised up with a device. Look at that. that, that, that I'm not slamming anybody. I'm just saying that that's a legitimate medical concern because that's a new posture that we've developed. Now, I don't know. It may be like your parents telling you your eyes would go bad from sitting too close to the TV. I don't, I don't, everybody doesn't have glasses, but there's a lot of us that do. I don't know if it's connected to that or if it's just simply a, a, a fallacy. I don't know. I'm just telling you, you and I have stuff that is constantly drawing our eyes down, and God wants you and I to look up. He wants you and I to look up. 
Can I just give you some practical advice? I mean, it's not new or revolutionary, but you and I need to have a quiet time with God every day. We, we need to have a devotional time where it's just us and God. And you know what that means? That means we need to turn the TV off. We need to turn the radio off. We need to silence the phone and put it in a different room. We need to get away from the tablet. I recommend getting yourself a hard copy of the Word of God if you don't have one and read from that. You say, man, that's old fogey, dude. Don't you know that, uh, that uh, print is going out? I said, yes, I do. I actually remember hearing a radio interview with a guy who wrote a book that said print was dead. And ironically, it was in print. <laughs> True story. But I say that to say not because I'm anti-technology, because I know this, my phone does more things than have a Bible on it. And there are times when I've tried to use my phone devotionally and a text comes in. Oh, well, I, I got I to respond to that. That's important. And I pop on it and open up and I get into a conversation. Or, or those push notifications come through. There's a news alert. Somebody just tweeted something that I need to see and may have to respond to, right? And so there are all kinds of things that, that if we're using that device for our devotional time, we are not giving our full attention to God. Unless you're putting that thing on airplane mode and you're not allowing anything else to come through. But I'm telling you, you and I need to look up. We need to look to God. We need to carve out some time in our daily lives where we get our eyes off of this world and off of our situation and off of everything else. And we just look at God. And we just admire Him from His Word. I am telling you, there have been times when I've sat in the privacy of my study and have literally been moved to tears because I caught a fresh view of God. I was reminded of the depth of his love as it was described on the pages of Scripture. My heart was still and my, my, my surroundings were quiet enough for the Holy Spirit to penetrate to my soul and to rock me with the truth of who God is. You and I need that, just like Moses needed that. And so the first change that God says is, Moses, look up, look up here. Remember, I am the Lord, I'm Jehovah, I'm El Shaddai, I'm Jehovah Elohim, I am the God who was, I am the God who is, I am the God who will be. I am sufficient for everything that you need. I was here before you got here, and I'll be here after you're gone, and I'll be here the whole time that you are here. Rest in me. But then God goes from telling Moses to look up to telling Moses to look back. Notice the text transitions, and you will have three I have statements in verse 4 and verse 5. After God tells Moses, hey, let me reintroduce yourself. I'm the Lord. I'm Jehovah. Look up here at me. I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan and the land of their pilgrimage wherein they were strangers. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel and the Egyptians in bondage. And I have remembered my covenant. I have, I have, I have. God says, hey, Moses, after you spend a little time looking up at me, being reintroduced to who I am and coming to know me in a deeper level in your own personal situation. Now I want you to look back 
at what I have done for the people of Israel. I made a covenant with him. He points him back to the Abrahamic covenant. It is an unbreakable covenant where God called Abraham and says, I will make out of you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, and I will establish you in the land. And in that covenant, God said, you will be in Egypt for 400 years, but I'm going to bring you out with a strong hand at the end of those 400 years. Let me tell you, when you and I are getting bogged down by life and we're getting disturbed by the situation that we are in, first we need to look up to God because he is the author and finisher of our faith, and then we need to look Look back at what he has said and what he has done and what he has promised. And I would say that we need to look back at the covenant that he has made. You see, because God is a covenant-making God, and we have the Adamic covenant, and we have the Noadic covenant, and we have the Abrahamic covenant, and we have the Jacobean covenant, and we have the Mosaic covenant, and we have the Davidic covenant, and we have the new covenant which was made in the blood of Jesus Christ. And all those previous covenants that were made were made with the people of Israel. But the new covenant was made with you and I. The new covenant was made with the New Testament church. And if you're a born-again child of God, if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you entered into a covenant with God, with Jesus as your advocate, with Jesus as your proxy, so that that covenant is unshakable and it is unbreakable. And God made some promises in that covenant to you and I that he is going to fulfill. Part of that covenant is that you will never be lost. Part of that covenant is that he will never leave you or forsake you. Part of that covenant is that he is going to prepare a place for you. Part of that covenant is that he ever liveth to make intercession for you. Part of that covenant is that he is coming back for you. Part of that covenant is that he's going to take you to heaven with him where you'll ever be in the presence of the Lord. I am telling you, it will encourage you if you look back at the covenant that God made with you and your people. I have established my covenant. Look, verse 5, I have also heard the groanings of the children of Israel. Hey, God's heard every cry. God's heard every prayer. How many prayers you think went up today from Christian people around this globe? How many prayers have went up this last week? How many prayers went up this year? I, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but prayers don't have no expiration date. Right? That's not good English, but it is good preaching, as the old-timers would say. They don't have an expiration date. I, I, I understand from the Bible that those prayers can be stored up. You know, you think about when you got saved. Let me tell you something. It wasn't the result of just the prayers that were prayed for you the day that you got saved or the day before or the week before. But that is the accumulation of the prayers that have been prayed for you by your mama and your grandmother and your daddy and everybody else who was concerned about your soul that brought you to that point of faith in Jesus Christ. And so I'm telling you, your prayers can outlive you. Because God says, I have heard the groanings of my people. And he says, I have remembered my covenant. And listen, we know that God doesn't forget. 
We know that God knows everything. What does he mean when he says that I have remembered the covenant? The idea is that I have brought it back in to my full focal attention. And I am about to make good on it. You know, I would say to you as a church is that God's promise is the same for you and I. He established a covenant with us. He's heard the groanings of his people for the last 2,000 years. And that covenant that he made with us, he's remembering it. And that termination date, that culmination date, is getting ever closer day after day after day. And we can look back over the ages and see how God's people have traversed in faithfulness. And we can be encouraged by the fact of looking back at what God has done. So look up. Look up. Remember who God is. Look back. Remember what God has done. And then he tells Moses this. Look ahead. Look ahead. I'm not finished. I am the God who is alive and ever active on your behalf. And he goes on in the next set of verses from verse 6 down to verse 8 to make seven I will statements. He made three I have statements. Now he's about to make seven I will statements. Look, Moses, let me tell you what's coming down the pike. Here's what I am going to do. He says in verse 6, I will bring you out. I will bring you out. Hey, whatever you're in right here is not what you're going to stay in. I have an advanced program for you. I am going to bring you out. Specifically in their context, I'm going to bring you out of bondage. I'm going to bring you out of Egypt. I am going to bring you out of the place that you're in. Number two, I will rid you of their bondage. I will rid you of their bondage. You say, well, isn't that the same as bringing it out? No, if it was the same, God wouldn't have said it. And the idea of ridding you of the bondage is that he's going to completely wipe it away. I don't know if you've thought about this, but you and I sometimes experience things And sadly, people who have had the experience of abuse understand that even though you may be away from your abuser, you're not away from the bondage. That sometimes the memories, the hurt, the pain, the things they planted in your head keep you in bondage to that abuse years after the abuse ends. And oftentimes, there has to be something major that happens to clear that away. The idea here, when God says, I will rid you of their bondage, is, hey, look, not only will I bring you out, but I'll break every chain, and there won't be anything that hangs on you when you leave this place. You remember how God did that? Oh, it's beautiful. When they were leaving Egypt, Pharaoh decided he was going to pursue, and they came to the Red Sea, and here they are. They are huddling together, a people without an army, a people without weapons, and there is the most powerful army on the earth at that time, and the Pharaoh is the angriest he has ever been because of what has happened to his hand. He, land. He has nothing left to lose. The only thing that's going to give him any satisfaction is to extract his pound of flesh from those Israelites. 
And God, in his sovereignty, holds them at bay until he parts the Red Sea. And then he sends the children of Israel over and they walk across on dry ground. And Pharaoh and his army are so hot in their revenge that they follow them into that Dead Sea. And God, in a moment, wipes out the entire Egyptian army and its Pharaoh. I would say that is ridding their bondage. Because you know what happened when they got to the other side of the Red Sea? None of them were looking over their shoulder. You read about a lot of things they went through. They struggled with some things. They were worried about other people in the land. They were worried about conditions. But what they never worried about was Pharaoh's army pursuing them into that new land. God says, I will rid you of their bondage. Number three, I will redeem you. The third I will statement, I will redeem you. And that redeem word is a purchase word. It's a price word. God is saying, I, I, I will pay for you. You say, why would God say that? I don't know. I don't pretend to know the mind of God, but I know this. It speaks of value. It speaks of value. God says, I will redeem you. I will purchase you. I will value you. And you know, I have counseled with people over the years who have struggled with self-worth. I know that over the years I struggled with self-worth. And the greatest truth that I have to give to anybody when it comes to struggling with your self-worth is the fact that God placed a value on you. You're bought with a price, the Bible says. Do you know what the price was? Do you know what God paid for you? His son. But God commended his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 8 says, If God did not withhold his Son when we were enemies, how shall he spare any good thing now that we are sons and daughters? Hey, look, you may not feel like you're worth much, but you are worth it all to God. God said, I will redeem you. I will value you. The fourth I will statement, I will take you to me, he says. I will take you to me in verse 7. That's how the verse begins. I will take you to me for a people. We always think that the promised land was the destination. But listen, the promised land was not the destination. God was the destination. You see, what God was doing was he was bringing a people out to bring them to himself. And you and I sometimes think that heaven is the destination when the fact is God is the destination. And we can reach that destination right here on planet earth. We can, in all the troubles and trials of life, we can be brought closer to God. We can enjoy the felicity of heaven in our present-day relationship with Jesus Christ. I will take you to me. Number five, I will be your God. I will take you to me for a people, and I will be to you a God. God says, you own me, I'll own you. I will be your God with everything that that means. 
I will be your protector, your provider, your peace, your vengeance taker, right? Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. If you have a God on your side, let me tell you, you don't have anything to worry about because he will repay. The sixth I will statement, I will bring you into the land. I will bring you into the land. That seems like it is a foregone conclusion. Why? That's superfluous for you to say, God, you're already bringing us out. You're redeeming us. You're bringing us to yourself. You are going to be our God. Why do you need to tell us we we already have that as a foregone conclusion? Because along the journey, things changed, didn't they? And when they were brought right up to the border to enter in, those people became afraid and they distrusted God. And God became angry with them and they spent the next 40 years in the wilderness. And during that time, I'm telling you, they have a promise that they could look back to where God said, I will bring you into the land. I will not leave you in the wilderness. I will bring you all the way home. Hey, you know, isn't that a wonderful truth when it comes to our Christian life? He'll take us all the way to heaven. We don't cross death's border by ourselves. He will take us home. The seventh I will statement, I will give it to you for a heritage. I will give it to you for a heritage is something that is passed on. It is something that is perpetual. And when he says this, he is saying, hey, look, this isn't just for you. This isn't just for this generation. This is for all of your generations that will follow. I will give it to you for a heritage. Aren't you so glad that you can pass your faith on to your children? to your grandchildren. You see, we have a heritage. We have a godly heritage. We have a faith that has lasted down through the ages and it is meant to be passed on. And God says, I have a heritage for you and I will give you a heritage. He promises a heritage to them. And he, of course, bookends it the way he began it. I am the Lord. When he began speaking to Moses, he says, let me preface this by saying, Moses, I am the Lord. So everything that I'm about to say is going to come out of the mouth of the Lord. And when he finishes it, just in case Moses forgot during God's speech, he says, everything that just came out, came out of the mouth of the Lord. I am the Lord. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He's the starting point. He's the terminal point. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. It begins with Him and it ends with Him. And so if you start with God, you will finish with God. But then something happens after God gets done talking. God has changed Moses' perspective, hasn't he? Look up! And Moses has looked up and he has admired God fresh and anew. Look back, 
And he's looked back at the covenant and the promises of God. And he's seen God's trustworthy track record. And then look ahead and he has seen that God has a laundry list of promises. I will, I will, I will. Unconditional, by the way. There is no condition. I will if you will. It is just I will do this. And Moses is charged up, man. The coach is pumped. And he goes back to the team and he says, I got a word from the Lord. And those rainmakers, poo-pooers, have an entirely different response. Moses spake so unto the children of Israel, verse 9, and they hearkened not unto Moses for anguish of spirit and for cruel bondage. I can't fault them. They're suffering. They're suffering. They're still trying to make those bricks. They still don't have straw. They still have taskmasters who are beating them and whipping them. They are still slaves. They're in human bondage. And just because Moses comes back with a promise, they haven't seen any action yet. And so their response is less than enthusiastic. Yeah, right, Moses, we've heard that before. That's the old English, they hearken not unto him. We've heard that story before. We've heard that line before. We trusted you before. We'll never make that mistake. Fool us once, shame on you. Fool us twice, shame on us. We, we, we just don't buy into that. Well, I mean, all the air comes out of Moses. You can imagine. I mean, he just went from the depths of despair to being lifted up by God in his private time and encounter with God, and then he brings it to the people, and the people are like, we don't buy into that. Hey, can I tell you something on Pastor Appreciation Sunday? Can I tell you? I've seen that happen with pastors and churches. And I've seen a, a pastor, man, he, he has got alone with God and he's got something from the Lord and he's been, and maybe he's been discouraged and he just, he has really spent some time with the Lord and the Lord has blown fresh wind into his sails and man, he's excited and he brings that to the church, he brings that to the leadership and they, and he, he just lays it out, man, we, we're going to do this and, and he gets, yeah, we've tried that before, pastor, it doesn't work. Yeah, we did that once about 10 years ago and you know. Sister so-and-so, she, she got a stomach ache from it. And you know how the story goes. Now, I, I always say this because I don't, I, I don't like when preachers make the, the members feel like they're the bad guys in every story. There's been plenty of preachers that had a harebrained idea they didn't get from God and they brought it to the church. And the church was right in saying, no, we're not going to do that. That doesn't make good sense. But understand this, Moses has a word from God. And the people, they just weren't buying into it. And so Moses is again disturbed. And Moses goes back to God. Lord, what's going on? Verse 12. Behold, the children of Israel have not hearkened unto me. That's interesting. You might want to underline that word, me. You see, again, Moses is looking in the wrong place. Shouldn't it be, God, they've not listened to you? Because all Moses is is a messenger. 
He's not the author. He's not the speaker. All he's doing is bringing a message from God. If he's taking this the right way, if his eyes are where they're supposed to be, he is supposed to be saying, God, they didn't listen to you. What are you going to do about that? But instead he says, they didn't listen to me. And then he gets on the pity party again. And he begins imagining how the future is going to go. Well, God, in case you didn't know this, how then shall Pharaoh hear me? Well, first of all, Moses, he's not supposed to hear you. He's supposed to hear God. But you're telling God the future? Something's wrong with that scenario. How then shall Pharaoh hear me, who am of uncircumcised lips? Number four, look out. <laughs> look out. Change your perspective. Look up, look back, look ahead, and look out. Because you and I have some patterns of behavior that are hard to break. We have some paths of thought that are hard to get off of. The danger is to look at others and to look at yourself instead of looking at God. And that's what, exactly what Moses does. They, people didn't hearken to me. How's Pharaoh going to listen to me who am of uncircumcised lips? You know, I had that verse wrong. When I read that the first time, I thought he was talking about Pharaoh. Pharaoh is the Gentile here, and Moses is the Jew. What does he mean of uncircumcised lips? Until I read the end of the chapter. Look at verse 30. And Moses said before the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How shall Pharaoh hearken unto me? Moses is talking about himself here. And you know what he's doing? He's playing his, his golden oldie. God, I can't talk. I'm of slow speech. I have a tied tongue. It's the exact same excuse that God, Moses gave to God when he first called him at the burning bush. I can't go and do this because I don't have the lips to do it with. And when God challenged him, he's like, hey, it hadn't happened before and it hasn't happened while you've been talking to me at this burning bush, so good luck finding somebody to do this. And God finally convinces him that he's going to send Aaron with him and that he will be his mouthpiece and then he, when he runs into the trouble again, he forgets everything that God has told him in between there, and he's back to saying, God, I can't do this because I don't have the ability to convince these people or Pharaoh. Moses has the same old complex. Hey, it's church. We're supposed to be able to share with each other, right? Now, I know we're not one of those touchy-feely churches. I've been to some of those. They make me uncomfortable. I, I don't really like to emote. I don't like to show emotion. It's not my favorite thing to do. And so I don't quite lead that way. But I do think it's good sometimes for us to, to get in touch with our feelings at church. Any of y'all have a complex? And the rest of you hiding it. Man, we complex human beings, and we all have complexes. And every one of us has something that we go back to, that we say, Lord, I can't do it because. Because I'm not smart enough. 
because I've sinned too much in my past, because I failed before. You fill in the blank, whatever it may be. And that's why I say, look out. Because it will crop up, it'll pop up like a weed. You don't have to plant it, you don't have to cultivate it. It is always there under the surface. And it will pop back up if you don't look up, look back, and look ahead to God. Would you bow with me? Lord, thank you so much for your encouragement. I need it, and I needed it tonight. Lord, I thank you that you encouraged your servant Moses. I thank you that you shared with us these details of personal conversations that you and he had so that we could understand how loving and kind and compassionate you are, how frail and feeble we are, and how that we need to have our perspective changed. Lord, I've heard a lot of Christians lately who are a bit pessimistic about the future and the uncertainty of what will come out of this election cycle. Father, help us to stop focusing on everything that's going on around us and help us to look up to you. Help us to spend some time this week just focusing on you, your attributes, your greatness, your holiness, your eternality. Help us to look back and to focus on your covenants, your promises, your faithfulness. And help us to look ahead and to remind ourselves of the promises that you made that you are fulfilling and will fulfill in the future. And help us to look out for those old pitfalls, those old ruts that we get into. I pray that for myself and for your people tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would.